Hey, deserving listeners, today I'm going to answer patron questions on the podcast, but this is going to be for patrons only. So if you're not a patron of the podcast yet, go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast, and you'll get access to this episode. When you become a patron, it's the best way that we know that you appreciate what we do. And so we love all our patrons. And if you're already a patron, then you'll hear the rest of this episode in which I answer patron emails. I'm guessing this will go one or two hours. We'll see. So if you're not a patron yet, become a patron now. Do it. All right. Welcome to the Patrons Own Patrons. This first email is from an upper Patreon tier anonymous person. She says, would a therapist tell me directly if I were being abused? None of my therapists have ever suggested that my family is abusive. In contrast, whenever I go online and ask for advice related to conflicts with family members, I have people coming out of the woodwork telling me that my family is very emotionally abusive. My situation is not normal at all, and it would be my best, in my best interest to move out of my parents' house as soon as possible. I've even had two different people tell me to contact CPS because I have two minor siblings living at home. For those outside certain areas, CPS is Child Protective Services. This was shocking to me because I only post limited information online while I am much more open with my therapist about what happens. I find it strange that so many internet strangers have told me that I am in an abusive relationship, whereas none of my therapists have discussed that with me. After receiving those comments, I asked my therapist if she thought my family was abusive. She avoided answering the question and just asked, what would it mean to you if your family was abusive? I got frustrated and never brought it up again with her or any other therapist. I'm guessing that my situation doesn't meet the legal definition of abuse because none of my therapists felt the need to report it. Perhaps the distinction is not important for therapists. However, I would want to know. If I knew I was being abused, I would feel justified in removing myself from the situation and limiting contact with my family. Do therapists tell their clients when their family members are being abusive? Why would a therapist avoid answering the question when asked directly? Are clients supposed to figure it out themselves? End of email. Yeah, so first off, if anonymous patron, you think you're in an abusive situation, you deserve support and safety, along with your siblings. Absolutely. So, you know, figuring this out, you know, whether or not you're being abused is a very important question that I'm glad you're exploring. So if your therapist isn't a very good source for that, uh, you know, exploration or determination, then I would seek maybe a second opinion because you deserve to be safe. And you also deserve to know professionally the answer to that question. Are you in an abusive situation? But to answer your question, uh, you know, do therapists tell their clients when their family members are being abusive? You know, like if I had a client who I started wondering, huh, I wonder if my client is being abused by their family. It depends on a lot of factors that we don't really know because we'd have to talk with a therapist. Um, you know, what's the goal of therapy? Because if the goal is to quit smoking or if the goal is to reduce, I don't know, like uh, I'm trying to think of something that wouldn't be related to abuse. Um, I don't know. If, if, if the goal was to help you with your career or something, then the therapist might determine, look, it doesn't really matter uh, to, you know, the goals are oriented in a certain direction. Whether or not this person is in an abusive situation or not, it's not necessarily related to the goals of therapy. Uh, now, most therapists would probably say, 
you know, being abused is probably related to any uh, goal in therapy, which I might agree with. I probably would agree with that. The other thing is, is it depends on whether or not the therapist thought it would help because maybe they thought, um, you know, if they did think you're an abusive relationship, maybe they thought, well, if I tell the client, then bad things will happen, which will result in more harm than good or something like that. So, it's, you know, it's hard to know. Um, and also, it would be potentially speculative for the therapist to make a call like that. You know, I could see a therapist saying, you know, my client asked me if they were in an abusive relationship, but I, you know, I couldn't really answer the question because I didn't know enough to say. And that's, you know, it's a pretty loaded question that I just didn't know enough information. Now, again, I would imagine most therapists would say, well, I need to assess for more. If, you know, if a client asked me, for example, for me, if a client asked me if, if they were in an abusive relationship, I would, and if I didn't know the answer to that question, then I would say, okay, well, let me ask you some questions. You know, do you feel safe? Uh, when do you feel scared? That kind of thing. The other thing to remember is, you know, you're talking about how your therapist uh, didn't really answer in the affirmative, and yet everyone online is saying, yes, you're absolutely in an abusive relationship. You know, the Internet is filled with people who are immature, who lack experience. You know, it's easy for them to say you're in, a, you're in an abusive relationship because they don't have to deal with the consequences. And people online are really quick to say shit like that, honestly. And you should really take it with a grain of salt. I mean, I would ignore pretty much anything online, even though I'm online right now, um, especially if you have a professional in front of you whom you can ask. Now, my advice to you is I would absolutely bring this up again. You know, you're saying you don't want to ever ask again, but uh, you have questions. So you deserve those questions to be addressed adequately. And these are very, very important questions to answer. And if your current therapist can't answer those questions adequately to your satisfaction, then again, I would find a second opinion. You could even just have one session with another therapist and, and ask. You can also go to a d domestic violence uh, center. You can also call a domestic violence hotline. And ask them. That might be your best bet since it doesn't cost anything. So to answer your questions directly, do therapists tell their clients when their family members are being abusive? The other question here is, why would a therapist avoid answering the question when asked directly? So the answer in my anecdotal opinion is yes. Usually therapists would tell a client if they were in an abusive uh, situation. Um, you know, but – some might not know very much about abuse, and so they might not know how to detect it. Also, some therapists might be scared of the consequences. They might be worried they're going to get sued by the parents or something. You know, I, I don't know. I, I can certainly imagine that uh, being a undue influence. Some therapists could be the type of therapist who want you to make uh, the determination yourself. There's a certain class of therapists, you know, psychoanalytic people are often like this where – they want to be a blank slate, and so they, when they're asked questions like this, they will do everything uh, to avoid answering uh, because they believe, rightfully so in a lot of situations, that if they answer the question, they rob you of the opportunity to explore it yourself, which is um, you know, a situation where it's like you, know, you can give a man fish or you can teach him how to fish. What's the, you can give a man food or you can teach him how to fish, that kind of thing. I, I can't remember the idiom, but – if you help a client determine it themselves, then they will learn how to determine all sorts of situations that you don't need to be there for. So it's possible your therapist was like that. It kind of sounds like that to me, you know, uh, 
you asked and your therapist just kind of avoided that, you know, what would it mean to you if your family was abusive? Like that sounds like that sort of classic blank slate response that a therapist would have. So it could just be their theoretical orientation. Uh, we could argue as to the ethics of that, um, you know, and go back and forth. But uh, so you might, it sounds like you're kind of in a situation like that. The other thing is, is that uh, you say, you know, I'm guessing I, my situation doesn't meet the legal definition of, of abuse. The legal definition of abuse is for children. There isn't a legal definition of abuse for adults. There are legal definitions for assaults and other kind of crimes, but not for the word abuse. So, uh, so there's that. The other thing is, is that even if you did, even if your therapist did think that you had met the requirement to be a victim of a crime, say, you know, physical abuse or something, physical assault, it's not a requirement that a therapist point that out to you. That's, you know, we're not mandated reporters of adult victims. So uh, know that your therapist might very well believe you're in an abusive situation and due to their theoretical orientation doesn't feel the need to report it because they, they would never need to report that in, in most situations. There's nuances, but anyway. So yeah, I, I would demand an answer to that question. If you don't get an answer, I would get a second opinion. I would call the domestic violence hotline. Uh, let's see. I'll, let me just Google that right now. DV hotline on Google. National Domestic Violence Hotline. Get help today. 1-800-799-7233. So call them and ask them. Um, and then you also ask the question, you know, are clients supposed to figure it out for themselves? This depends. Uh, like I said, for some therapists, they're going to have that point of view. Certainly it could help if a client determines that themselves. But, you know, the syndrome of being a victim, particularly if you grew up with it your entire life, if your parents were like this your entire life, victims aren't very good gauges for that determination because their norm is abuse. And so it really does take someone on the outside to point out, look, you're in an abusive situation. I know it feels normal to you, but you don't you deserve to not be treated that way. So uh, we shouldn't, as a society and as a profession, expect victims to know that they're in an abusive situation. Okay, next email. All right, this next email is from patron Jenna, or Ginna, I think it's Jenna. Uh, she asks, when attempting to introduce the concept of attachment theory to a client, do you just uh, discuss and teach it in session? Or do you have any go-to resources or blogs to give them to read as homework? End of uh, question. The answer is yes, I do. I do teach attachment theory to clients as a way of helping them. I find it to be a pretty easy thing to teach and uh, very helpful, very useful to clients. Um, I pretty much with all my clients, I go over attachment theory. And over time, we'll, we'll revisit it. You know, maybe every session we'll be like, OK, that sounds like avoiding attachment to me. You know, let's let's try to dig deeper and trust other people. Remember that due to your childhood, blah, blah, blah. You have this attachment style, blah, blah, blah. Let's interpret your emotions. Let's interpret your triggers. Let's interpret your uh, reactivity here so that you can get your needs met. Um, yeah, uh, I just, you know, rough estimate off the top of my head. You know, nine out of 10 clients, that's uh, what I'm doing almost every session because I'm an attachment, you know, interpersonal, psychodynamic oriented therapist. And 
I find it to be the central feature in most of my clients' issues. All right, next question. All right, this next email is from Anonymous Patron. She writes, I am a Mexican-American female and recently watched the Super Bowl performance with J-Lo and Shakira. Being Latina, uh, it was a very proud moment for the Latinx community. However, one small part bothered me, and I wondered if I'm alone in this. J-Lo gives a couple of shout-outs to Latinos, which in turn gave me some mixed feelings. I was proud for her, for our community, and for the personalized shout-out to me, a Latina. But then I wondered, did anyone feel left out? Is this sending a message of unity and equality? Or is it maintaining the cultural walls that seem to, that seem to be stronger than ever? For example, a couple uh, summers ago, I had the same thought as I attended a reggae jazz festival, and an amazing black female jazz artist was performing. I was really enjoying her performance, but throughout the performance, she gave continuous shout-outs to black women and black women only. I've heard artists do this in the past to their uh, to their prospective race and always thought it was a nice touch if done maybe once or twice during a set. But the continuous mention of it made me feel excluded, and as I looked at the crowd, it was clear it was the typical melting pot of cultures that is one of my favorite things about living in Los Angeles. I wondered, did anyone else feel left out? And why did I feel left out when all she was doing was being a proud black woman and praising all black queens? They absolutely deserve that shout out. I guess ideally, as I admired her talent, I would have appreciated recognition too. How can you be proud of who you are racially while promoting unity and equality? End of email. Yeah, a complicated thing. You know, people could write a dissertation on this, but very briefly, when a group is treated unfairly like black women or uh, Latinx people, uh, when people are treated unfairly by the majority, because, you know, that can feel particularly bad, then the group, they tend to benefit by sticking together and showing support for one another. You know, they need that. And that might mean excluding other people, which sucks, but it's necessary. And people from other groups need to be sensitive to that. So as people are watching J-Lo and Shakira uh, give shout-outs to Latinx community, if you feel left out by that, you need to be cognizant of the fact that this is kind of a rare moment for Latinx people. They don't, they don't get moments like this very often. And so although you, f you might feel a little left out, um, you know, think how they feel all the time. <laughs> and so, you know, just give them a little bit of that. Um, the other thing is, is that when, you know, people like Shakira and J-Lo give shout outs to their people, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a part of it. Like for me, when, when J-Lo and Shakira did that, although I'm not Latin X at all, I, I didn't feel excluded. I felt included because as a person of color myself, I felt like that, you know, they're speaking for my team, the, the people of color, or even just more broadly, you know, oppressed people and for pride and for justice. Um, that's what they were speaking for in, in terms of that's what I heard. And so I'm not excluded from that group, right? Having said that, when groups exclude other people, they need to be mindful of how that will affect others. You know, we need to have empathy for other people. For example, I had a friend years ago. She uh, is Hapa, like me. She's half uh, Japanese, half white. And she went to an all-woman event. It was like some kind of, I don't know, some kind of seminar or something. And the leader was a African-American woman, and she 
split the group into black women and all the other women. And my friend, who is a person of color like me, half Japanese, she protested and she said, like, why am I being put? So, you know, because it was essentially framed as like there's the white group and then there's the black group. And there wasn't a there there there. Uh, my friend was the only mixed race person there. And my friend was like, hey, um, I am a person of color. I, I feel like I shouldn't be lumped in with the with the white people because <clears throat> I certainly understand oppression as, as an Asian person. And the leader said, no, 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 you're half white. You're part of the problem. You need to be with the white people. And she felt really bad about that. And she, you know, she felt like, one, why are we separating into two groups? Two, why am I being lumped in with white people? I mean, I'm, I'm the oppressed class. by you know, I'm oppressed by white people. And, uh, you know, again, we could debate the finer points of that, but that clearly lacks an empathy for the group. Maybe that was her point. Maybe she was trying to, you know, put people in their – I don't know. It's hard to know. I certainly wouldn't do that as a leader of anything like that. And so we have to be careful when we are excluding people, what effect that's going to have on people and, and uh, you know, is that really what we want ultimately? And – uh you know, the other thing to, to know is even when that does happen, which I believe to be unfair, the other thing, you know, and I, if you listen to me talk, you'll hear me say this in other instances, is, you know, when a group is treated badly, like African-American women, like, you know, Latinx people, like HAPA people, they sometimes operate from that pain. You know, the people walk around in the constant state of pain or just in frustration from that oppression. And... Uh, they will sometimes operate from that pain, which will come out of, come across as hostile and come across as maybe being unfair to others. And from the outside, it, it'll look like, wow, you're overreacting or why are you treating people like that? But to the hurt parties, you know, to the oppressed class, you know, it's self-protection. Uh, when, you know, if you kick a dog long enough, it's going to start biting you back. And, Although if you if you just walked in the room and saw a dog bark, you know, saw a dog barking and biting someone, you'd be like, "Whoa, that dog's out of control." But what you don't know is that dog's been kicked for so long. And so some of that unfairness might be just expected. It it doesn't mean that our feelings on the outside aren't valid. You know, you anonymous patron go to this concert and you get this constant message like, "Yeah, black queens, blah blah blah." And you're just like, hey, what about me, you know, as a as a Latin queen, Latina queen? Um, and, you know, for African-American women, the oppression is so ongoing and so pervasive and so transgenerational and so institutionalized that, you know, they might not care that it hurts your feelings. They might just be like, OK, fine. You know, you feel excluded. I, I don't care. I, uh, my... And me and my people have so much hurt feelings and so much anger and so many, so much need for solidarity in this moment that, you know, I don't care right now. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying we need to understand that in perspective. You know, like, I don't know if people remember the episode from years ago in which I talked about the Evergreen State College here in Seattle, here near Seattle and Olympia, Washington, where there was this clip going around of these you know, college students just yelling at a professor and everyone was like, oh, those entitled snowflake kids, you know, especially the Republicans. And my argument was, you know, you kick people long enough, uh, something bad's going to happen. It doesn't justify the bad thing, 
but it explains it. So, you know, that's what I'll say about that. All right, next email. All right, this next email is from an anonymous psychologist. She writes, I'm not sure whether you've ever done a podcast on boot camps for teens. I know they have some that are fine, but having a couple of my psychotherapy patients put in boot camps has been the worst experience of my professional life. Parents who send their kids are often very well-meaning and at the end of themselves in finding a way to help their kids. Some kids are sent for relatively small infractions. I worked very hard with a 15-year-old adopted from Russia at about age 9 with diagnoses of PTSD and attachment disorder. The boot camp her parents brought her to isolated her from her friends and boyfriend, as well as from her adoptive parents. I tried to collaborate with the boot camp talking with them about how important it was to sustain contact with reliable attachment figures, and they were very rigid, telling me she would earn privileges to see her family when she stopped being so angry. I mean, seriously, how would you feel if you were taken away from your life, kind of for the second time? I tried to talk with her adoptive parents about the situation, and they had convinced themselves that they were doing the right thing and had paid $50,000 to the program. In some of the programs, I don't even think they were licensed mental health professionals. There was one program that seemed almost kind of Scientology-based, and I read that in the state having licensed medical, that in that state, having licensed medical or mental health professionals wasn't required at boot camps. I saw a teenager after, quote-unquote, graduating from a boot camp, and what he told me was harrowing, taking kids' shoes so they wouldn't run away being put in seclusion, not being allowed to receive phone or mail contact with family. I actually called Child Protective Services in the state where the program was located with the intention of providing information that the prompt, uh, that, that would prompt an investigation, and CPS basically laughed at me. As you can see, I still have a lot of feelings and outrage about this. It makes me so sad because these programs are preying on the, on the desperation of parents who feel like they have nowhere else to go. Sometimes the parents are terrified their kids are going to end up involved in the legal system, but I believe these programs contribute to creating criminals. End of email. Yeah, totally agree. I've seen this before. I've worked with a lot of families in situations like this. I've had a lot of clients um, in the past when I used to work with these sorts of people. Uh, I've had a lot of clients who went to boot camps and I would talk with them before and after. Yeah, you're right. Uh, parents, they're desperate. Um, they, you know, like the one you gave, the example you gave, it was a child at the age of nine that was adopted uh, from Russia. And the uh, often what happens, you know, if you're adopted at age nine in all likelihood or a, a lot of the time, the child from zero to nine experienced tremendous attachment disruptions that are not uh, <clears throat> insignificant as an effect on their personality. And the kids will be quite out of control and seemingly psychopathic in some ways, conduct disorder, this kind of thing. And as adoptive parents, you're saints because you adopted these kids when you didn't need to. But you did not know you were signing up for uh, such a task of having to house a child that is basically um, like a, a little Ted Bundy and has no empathy for you and is aggressive, maybe violent. And 
you know, as an adoptive parent, you're just like, oh, my God, you know, what, uh, what do I do? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm terribly ashamed of what's happening. I thought I would be able to save this kid. No one told me that this might happen. Uh, can I give the kid back? No, that seems wrong. You know, I'm a loving parent. I, I have morals. I can't give the kid back. Uh, you know, I, I want to fix this kid. And, you know, these parents, whether they're adoptive or not, you know, they're just trying so hard and, and they take them to countless therapists and psychiatrists and doctors. And, and there's just, you know, lots of people try things. Lots of people have answers. Nothing works. Uh, they're, Behavior gets worse and worse heading into the mid-teen years. And, yeah, it's awful. And so the boot camps um, come along with extremely slick marketing, uh, especially their websites, you know, wild claims. 98% of our, you know, uh, kids emerge uh, happier and more well-behaved and, you know, move on. You know, here's here's three kids who graduated from our program and are now doing great in life. and. You know, these these are uh, really cooked claims. Uh, these websites, these these organizations can basically say anything because it's like, you know, who's going to look into those stats? And, uh, you know, unless the press or a lawyer decides to really press it, you know, and they probably have some way of saying, well, look, you know, we, we sent out a survey and this is the results we got. So it's really hard to, to for parents to know that, the claims that these boot camps will have are really uh, dubious. And then the parents uh, who can afford this, you know, they're the people who have a lot of money. But although I will say I did have one mother who, a single mother, who actually, you know, took out a second mortgage on her condo so that she, she could pay for her kid to go to this. So sometimes some parents aren't, you know, super rich and, and will still find a way because of how difficult it is for them with their kids. And, you know, as a parent or as a human, whenever you spend money on something, it starts to, you start to sort of convince yourself that it was worth it, you know. And the fact is, is similar to you, I rarely saw it work. Kids usually come back more hurt, more angry, or it just sort of postpones things for a year or something. Now, I will say occasionally in my experience, the kid would kind of wake up maybe the year away from their family and away from their friends help them to mature a little bit. You know, they they emerged from the boot camp just, you know, a little bit more thoughtful with a little bit better judgment and they can be more constructive. You know, maybe you need to separate them from the gangs. Maybe you need to separate them from substances. And maybe they miss their family and, and while they're gone, they, they make some resolutions. I will say, though, that, uh, you know, these boot camps, in my experience, they – they never change the person. So if the person already had attachment injuries, it it doesn't cure that attachment injury. And as you say, anonymous psychologists, it could actually make it worse, right? You know, it's a weird thing in our culture. We have, if you don't know about these boot camps, they don't call them boot camps. They'll call them like, you know, residential treatment centers or, you know, teen outreach residences or something recovery from conflict. I don't know. Uh, and they, you know, they'll be called like sundown ranch or, um, actually that was a CD, um, place here in, in Washington state back in the day. But anyway, it's this weird thing where, you know, these, you know, middle-class rich parents will hire goons actually. Cause a lot of times these kids won't go willingly. Right. So you actually have to hire these goons 
and uh, you know strong men who have a van and they drive up from the camp and of course you pay for all this and the goons uh, come into your house and uh, you know basically restrain the child with their you know with their arms and hands <laughs> and uh, drag the kid into the van and then take the kid to the boot camp and then once they're at the boot camp they're you know essentially prisons and uh, some of these are even in Mexico where the regulations are a lot more relaxed and the behaviors that you can get away with to kids is a lot more severe. Now, I had one kid that went to a Mexican boot camp that was uh, – it just sounded awful. It just sounded, you know, absolutely horrific. Worse than prisons sound, you know, actual adult criminal prisons. It sounded worse than that. And, yeah, I mean uh, – I'd have to see the research on it, but anecdotally, um, I I rarely saw them work, and when they did work, it was unsure if that's really what worked or if just them getting older is what worked. You know, there's this idea in our culture of, like, you have a defiant kid, and, you know, what you need to do is you, you just need to beat them into submission, right? That's the whole, like, Jerry Springer where you have a drill sergeant just yelling at the kids. This, this, there's this notion that... When you have a, a kid who is acting out, you know, uh, cash you outside kind of a thing that you just need, you know, uh, someone that is really strong and won't take no guff, just, you know, t holding the line and, you know, just making sure that those kids know who's boss. And, you know, by the time a kid is a teenager, those windows have closed uh, in terms of, uh, you know, you, you can get away with that earlier on in life. I mean, every parent and, you know, m many teachers might as well have been through the experience where you have a kid who's breaking rules and sometimes you have to raise your voice to get their attention. And, you know, that can work uh, with some kids. And maybe even sometimes you have to slam your fist against the table and say, hey, knock it off. You know, when you're, you know, when you know, say you're you have two sons that are like uh, starting to grab knives to hurt each other or something, you know, it's like. You got to show them like, whoa, you just crossed a line and maybe slamming your fist into the table. I'm not advocating abuse or scaring the shit out of your kids, but I'm just saying that, you know, it's a natural impulse that we have where it's just like, you know, there's a limit and you need to draw that limit for children. And when you don't draw that limit for children, it's actually neglect in a certain way. Parenting is complicated. There's no right or wrong way to parent. Every kid's different. So it's, it's you know, I've been down... Uh, many, many roads with parents in terms of trying out various different things. And I know better than to make any kind of um, generalized uh, statement about what parenting should look like. But but anyway, so it's a natural impulse that we have when you see a, like a 14-year-old who is talking back and not going to school and using drugs in the house and stealing money from mom's purse and, you know, and, and shoplifting and uh, maybe even dealing drugs from the from the back uh, yard. I've certainly, seen all these things, uh, or even just being violent, stealing stuff from your siblings, um, stealing the car, crashing the car. I had one kid who stole thirty cars in thirty days. No joke. <laughs> he had stole, and and the only reason why I got caught is because the thirtieth car he stole, he crashed into like three other cars and was, you know, caught by the police. And then confessed to, uh, or I don't know if he confessed, or at least he told me he stole 30 cars. And, uh, you know, these, this is out of control. This is not good. Uh, and as a parent, you're, and then parents are liable for this behavior a lot, a lot of times. You know, the, the police will say, well, 
and this is what happened in my case was the kid had crashed into three other cars as he was he was driving down the street and there was cars parallel parked and he just like scraped by three other cars and the owners of those cars wanted you know to someone to pay for the damages and the kid didn't have any money so they sued the parents and and lost you know the the parents lost and so the parents are having to pay thousands of dollars in in damages that you know they don't have that kind of money laying around and so it gets you know it gets pretty concerning and uh, uh, maybe and if you haven't been in this situation another thing that that I'll paint a picture is like imagine you have a kid who has threatened to kill you is you know living in just down the hallway and is you know has probably like hidden knives in their room has maybe hit you before has uh you know, is dealing drugs, is, is in a gang, maybe even has killed people on the street, you don't know, is completely, you know, off the hook in terms of, you know, n- never compliant with anything you're saying, uh, really mean to you, really disrespectful. And every night you're going to bed and you're just like, am I, am I going to wake up to the house burning down? Am I going to wake up to my kid killing me? Am I going to wake up to the dog being killed by this by this monster the living in my house like it it's severe you know if you if you've never been in a situation like that before like you might have a hard time imagining that happening it happens so you know i get the impulse um and uh but the fact is is that as a society we just don't have enough resources and uh, namely money to support families like this you know you're a parent or a, a protocol, you know, sometimes we call them wraparound services and this kind of thing. But, but, you know, the thing that I always thought of when I was working with families like this, and, and I would, you know, be working with some families like this for months, if not years, and we would try everything under the sun. You know, I, I would throw everything I had, we, and the parents would be on board, and We'd do, you know, we'd be nice. We'd let them do whatever they wanted to. We would have, you know, uh, token systems and we would try to build the attachment and I would try to reach out to the kid, try to reason with the kid, you know, try to throw down and be cool. And, you know, I'd try all these things and nothing would work. And the thing I'd always come back to was like a hundred years ago, these kids would just move out, you know, and in other parts of the world, uh, when you have a situation like that, the kid just moves because oftentimes the kids wanted to move out. They'd be like, I don't want to live here anymore. And the fact that you're trapping me in this house means, you know, the gloves are off. And in other countries and in other times in history, uh, you know, you got a 14-year-old who's doing this. You're just like, okay, you know, you want to move out. You're being violent. Feel free to move out. But in the United States, that's considered neglect often. And parents can get in trouble for that. They usually don't, but at least there's a threat of that. And so... You know, the parents and the kids are sort of trapped together like two caged animals until the kid turns 18, at which time the kid can legally move out. And I just wonder, it's just like, why do we live in this really stupid world? I mean, and I especially like if you're 16 and you're doing this sort of stuff, I would just be thinking, well, wouldn't it be nice if we just kind of gave it a try um, and, and had the 16 year old move out? I'm not saying that's a good idea. But it's definitely the lesser of two evils. You know, let the kid figure out that life sucks out there, that you got to get a job and that uh, it's hard hustling. And 
it's hard when you don't have people, you know, doing your laundry and giving you food and giving you a home to live in and all that kind of stuff. It's hard. You know, maybe that will help them to mature and they can come back, you know, hat in hand and be like, um, can I live? And that would happen sometimes, you know, even re- regardless of the, the law. Uh, sometimes kids would just run away or the parents would sort of live underneath the legal radar and they'd be like, uh, so the kid is living with his friend right now and we're just choosing not to tell the authorities about this. And, you know, sometimes the kid would come back hat in hand and be like, wow, I didn't realize how much it sucked out there. You know, I was so kind of hell bent on being on my own. I thought that was the solution to all my problems. Turns out it's not. Um, It sucks. You know, I had one kid who was living in a van with his girlfriend and he was like freezing his ass off and he didn't have any food or clothes. And um, it was scary living, you know, in a van on the street. And uh, he came back hat in hand. You know, he didn't solve his personality issues or his, you know, his other diagnoses. But you know, it was a it was a step forward that wouldn't have happened if the kid was trapped at home. It's complicated. You know, I'm not saying that you know kids should be kicked out before they're ready because they could get victimized and hurt and all these kinds of things. But uh, all I know is that I was with families through this, and it's very tough. And I understand why they turn to these boot camps. And to some extent, you could, you know, I, I would even have conversations like this, you know, because parents would ask me who could afford it. They'd be like, so there's this boot camp. We were thinking about. And what I tell them was like, look, in my experience, it never works. And the claims that these, uh, you know, these boot camps make are uh, probably not accurate. Um, definitely not in my experience. And the, the, the figures they have are pretty obviously over overblown, overstated. Uh, So, you know, understand that, that you could send the kid there and it will, you know, they'll be forced to go and they'll be locked in there for a year. Uh, But uh, one, they might actually, you know, these boot camps can kick, they can kick kids out if the kid is really off the hook. But um, what I would say is it's probably not going to work. But but the the other thing I would say is, is even though it doesn't work, You've been at this problem for five years, and there is a benefit to sending the kid. One, the first benefit is you and your family get a reprieve from the abuse that this kid is, you know, uh, doling out to you guys. So uh, that's one thing if you, you know, and don't be ashamed for wanting that, especially if you have other kids that are in the house being abused as well, you know, and you don't have any attention left for those kids. So sending this, you know, uh, uh, this kid to this other place for a time, it, you know, it, there's benefits in that way. Uh, but I also would say that it's very expensive and just understand that uh, you're understand what you're getting for that money. You're essentially getting an advanced babysitter that might actually harm the child. Um, but you're, you're not getting a fix. You're not getting therapy. You're not getting a solution to this kid's personality. Um, the kid will emerge with the same risks of substance abuse and gang activity and violence and self-destructive behavior uh, in all likelihood. And so a lot of parents, after you know, we'd go back and forth about this, they would decide not to do it. They'd just be like, nah, I guess you know, I, I, I'm not at the point where I want to do that to this child, even though this child is a is a monster in our house. I, I, I would feel too ashamed if I did that to this child. 
And so, um, but, you know, some parents would. Uh, there are also some boot camps that are actually not that expensive, like there's church boot, boot camps that some people would be sent to, and the tuition would be actually quite low because it was like this church organization was basically running a extremely nonprofit organization that was uh, set up to as a charity, essentially, to kids who need things. So sometimes I remember there was this one in Texas that was like that, that one of my kids was sent to. And if I remember right, actually, I remember that one being a little better, strangely, um, or maybe not so strangely. Anyway, let's go on to another email. Okay, this next email is from famous patron Lyndon. He writes, uh, he sent me this article about parenting, and he says, I find articles like this really annoying. It's not that the advice is universally bad, speaking as a layperson, but the presentation, How Not to Screw Up Your Kids, the title of the article is How, you know, how to Not Screw Up Your Kids, um, as though kids are a time bomb and once they are damaged, they're done forever. Perhaps this is from Real Clinicians on Reddit because the article is reportedly from Real Clinicians on Reddit. But you'd have to wonder about how they feel about it being presented this way. God, I hate media some days. <laughs> okay, so let's read this article. It's on Indy 100 from The Independent, and it's called, These are the biggest mistakes that parents make according to therapists. So they asked on Reddit a bunch of therapists, you know, what are the biggest mistakes that parents make that screw up their kid? Now, uh, you don't have to be verified as a therapist on Reddit, so who knows if these people are actually therapists. Uh, but anyway, so there are seven tips that they have, like how to not screw up your kid. Uh, never telling them when they get something right. Catch your kids being good. Parents are always telling what they did wrong. You have to balance it out by telling them what they're doing right. Uh, you know, end of this passage. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, make sure that you tell your kids when they're doing things right. Uh, actually, behaviorist uh, research will find that for humans and other animals to some extent as well, that... When, if you want to shape behavior, if you want to change behavior, that positive, uh, you know, reinforcement, you know, telling telling someone that they're doing nice things, um, you know, and rewarding them, uh, even if uh, all you have is verbal encouragement, is the best way to change behavior, not by punishing people. Uh, number two, not letting them fail, teaching them that failure is unacceptable or a sign of laziness, or that they just uh, didn't want it enough. It results in people who can't take no for an answer or stay uh, or stay at terrible stay in terrible situation. Um, yeah, not letting them fail for sure. Uh, there are parents who are overprotective and will not let their kids fail. Uh, you know, it depends on the failure. You don't want kids to fail. You know, in a, in terrible ways. You want to help. You know, protect them. Uh, but, and maybe this is what famous patron Lennon is talking about. It's just like, these are, you know, a little simplistic and it is, um, as I was talking about earlier, parenting is complicated. Number three, not realizing you're actually bullying your kids. Psychologist here, parents are frequently their child's first bully. Number one thing is probably being too distracted by addictions, grief, mental health issues to be emotionally present for their child. Too many adults walking around unaware of their worth because they were never shown or told that they matter. Um, it's kind of a weird passage because, you know, emotional neglect, I wouldn't call that bullying, right? Um, but yeah, 
Obviously, you know, don't bully your kids. I don't think that's a revolutionary idea. Number four, trying to seem perfect. Uh, failing to admit it when you're wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, one of the worst things you can do as a human being, let alone as a parent, is to never admit you're wrong. Now, usually people do this because they have personality disorders and it's hard for them to even know when they're doing something wrong or even you know, accept it in any sort of way. So it's easier said than done for some people. Number five, not dealing with their own emotions. Yeah, that's pretty obvious too. Number six, telling them to suck it up. Uh, yeah, that's a terrible thing to tell kids, you know, just suck it up. Uh, and all kids are basically told that on some level, which makes us all grow up with tremendous shame and uh, suppression of our emotions when we should not be doing that. And number seven, making excuses for them. Uh, the most common issue I come across is enabling children. Some parents have the ability to actually make excuses or reasons for every challenging behavior or place blame on other people. Yeah, uh, it depends. You know, you, you, uh, there's situations where you might want to stick up for your kid and you might want to uh, not have them um, in bad situations and you might want to make excuses for them. But yeah, I mean, uh, there are some parents who are very sensitive to their kids being criticized and they can't see the, you know, the woods through the trees and they will, you know, like yeah, the, a classic example is a teacher says, hey, little Johnny uh, acts out in class and is uh, not sitting in his chair, uh, you know, for extended periods of time and he's not doing his homework. And the parent will get defensive and say, "Oh, you're you're picking on him. You know, you're 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 targeting him with your you know gaslighting or whatever." And uh, you know, uh, that's a pretty bad message you want to send your kids that they uh, that their behavior is okay and that authority shouldn't be listened to. Um, it's complicated, but yeah, you know, it makes sense. I don't know if there's revolutionary things in there. Okay, let's go into another email. Okay, this next email is from Tori. She says, I have a question about a coworker who I suspect might be a narcissist. I started working a part-time job at a dog daycare in September. From the first day of working there, the other employees warned me about a specific person that I should watch out for. This employee is known to target the most recent hire and then try to get them fired. She used to be a supervisor and would write people up for very minor things like calling a dog the wrong name or forgetting to put something away. I'm the current target, and while I've worked with difficult people before, I've never had to deal with anything like this extreme. She's making me feel like I'm walking on eggshells and that I can't do anything right. She's constantly correcting me even when I know she's wrong. When I call her out on, on a mistake she's made, she's, she always blames it on someone else. I can sometimes see her watching me and waiting for me to mess up. It's really unsettling, and I have no idea what would make her this way. It clearly comes from a place of deep insecurity, which is why I think she might have narcissistic personality disorder. What do you think of the situation? What can I do about it? Is there any way I could help her? End of email. Uh, well, you know, what do I think about the situation? It sounds awful. Uh, it sounds abusive, and it sounds like an HR violation. <laughs> And uh, I've I've worked with people like that before, absolutely long term, 
And I'm here to tell you that uh, it's traumatic. It's no joke. It's not just like an annoyance, like that kind of emotional abuse or uh, that kind of hostility is bone rattling. So I'm really sorry you're going through that. And that's completely unfair. Uh, whether or not this person has narcissistic personality disorder, you and I both do not know the answer to that question. Um, uh, expert would have to assess this person for a long time. There's any number of reasons why a person would be like this, you know, uh, and like, you know, narcissistic personality spectrum could be uh, a speculate could be a conceptualization we might land on with someone like this, but we don't have enough information. You know, the person could be antisocial. The person could be uh, struggling with substance abuse. The person could uh, be could have PTSD and be triggered by particular kinds of people. The person could have borderline. The person could have histrionic. The person could have passive aggressive. The person could have, um, you know, mood disorders. The could the person could be slightly delusional. Uh, paranoid personality. You know, there, there's a lot of possibilities that could lead to what you're seeing. Narcissistic personality spectrum, you know, is is up there, you know, probably top 20 uh, hypotheses that one would investigate with someone like this. And, you know, the reason why a narcissistic person does this sort of thing is because, like you say, because of the deep insecurity, they need, you know, uh, it's not just insecurity, it's a deep abyss of nothingness that is insecure, but it's also just nothing. And so they, they're like paddling above water, you know, they're like, um, you know, what do you call it? What do you call it when you're treading water? So that they're, you know, they're treading water all the time. And the thing that keeps them, their head above, you know, drowning level is to uphold that they're superior. And for some people, when they are in this constant, ever-flowing need to assert their own superiority to themselves. A lot of it is like they're trying to prove to themselves that they're superior because if, they, if they're not superior, the idea is it's like they're inferior and thus they have to face the abyss that, that they feel on an ongoing basis. So they're always trying to make themselves fear. And one of the ways that they can do that is to um, compare themselves to other people. And one of the ways they can compare themselves to other people is to make sure that they're putting other people down. And they not only, you know, don't take responsibility, but they can't. Because, again, if they do, they have to admit they made a mistake, which means they have to face their own problems, which means and their flaws. And they have to, you know, face the fact that they aren't perfect. And then they they drown or they feel like they're going to drown. So, yeah. Uh, what can you do about it? I don't know. Quit. <laughs> you know, talk to HR, get support, uh, tell her to fuck off. Uh, she's not your boss anymore and she should go to hell. <clears throat> you know, uh, get power, man. Uh, tell her, you know, no. Yeah, that, what can she do? Uh, if everyone knows she's ridiculous, then she doesn't have any, you know, uh, diplomatic clout anyway. And I don't know how much you depend on this job, but um, you don't deserve that kind of bullshit. I could also try to get the person fired. <laughs> That's what I'd do. Uh, is there any way you could help help her? No. Uh, there's nothing. You know, if, if the person indeed does have a personality disorder, there's nothing you can do. Uh, I'm sorry. You know, you're not. It would take a therapist whom she wanted help from five to ten years to actually help her. So, you know, you're far from that. Um, so, yeah. 
uh, that's what I'll say about that. I'm sorry you're going through that. It sounds rough. I've been there before. It is not. It it is not cool. All right, next email. All right, this next email is from patron Julia. She writes, "Hapa fan here and patron emailing again." So Hapa meaning half Japanese or half Asian, um, and so I'm also Hapa. I was wondering if you would consider talking about children's interest in horror and violent characters like creepy pasta. You might recognize this name because it was in the news a while back when a child was stabbed several times by two other children because of their belief in one of the main creepypasta characters, Slender Man. What makes certain children interested in violent images? What about for those with a history of trauma? How can clinicians work with such children? If the child is not acting out any violence at this point, are there still steps to take to ensure safety? What if the child is watching these characters but won't talk about it in therapy end of email uh, yeah great questions very concerning to parents um i will point everyone to unpopular culture podcast they uh have a wonder my friend michael drain has a wonderful episode on slender man uh, that uh, describes the full case with these two kids who stabbed one of their friends because reportedly because they were into slender man which is this like horror essentially like a horror movie or internet horror um uh character a scary character anyway um yeah so what makes certain children interested in violent images well it's unknown because we don't know why anyone does anything really we just have like associations and um you know what about for those with history of trauma you ask and yeah uh trauma will raise the possibility that children will be interested in violent imagery uh, for sure it can also make them very sensitive to violent imagery you know basically if you're exposed to violence you have uh you know one set of choices which is you can either choose to um you know become the abuser and sort of adopt the violence and and identify with that while having a part of you that's very sensitive to to violence but you're exhibiting the uh, violent side of that equation in your behavior and in your conscious mind but while in the unconscious mind you're you're very scared and and very threatened by violence even the violence that you commit um, you can do that or you can sort of try to protect yourself from the violence and really avoid it a lot um, so you know it's a similar thing when people are sexually abused you basically have two choices you can either uh, as a way of coping you can either lean into sexuality and become hypersexual as a way of gaining control over sex and maybe even over possible abusers by essentially becoming you know extremely sexual or you can avoid sex all you know altogether which um, you know protects the self from you know further victimization but makes the self feel kind of helpless and and um, kind of in the lesser powerful position so um so yeah, so if you have a kid who is exposed to violence or physically abused or um, this kind of thing, uh, you know, trauma, fear, maybe they had a surgery even, you know, say at five years old, they had heart surgery or appendicitis when they were seven and, you know, woke up with all the tubes inside of them. And this was very traumatic for them. Uh, it's an unfortunate trauma that can't really be avoided, but it is traumatic for kids sometimes. Um, yeah. Um, attraction to these kind of images kurt cobain actually comes to mind I, I don't know his story that well but i know enough to know that he was very fascinated with the human body you know the 
um, the uh, cover to in utero, there's like this, there's all this bodily imagery, you know, intestines. And he liked to, he was very obsessed with all those kinds of medical things. And uh, from my memory, it was, had something to do with his own experience with medicine or his mom's or something anyway. And so, uh, yeah, so that will, but you know, some kids are just attracted to violent images and there's, we can't really point to anything in their history that, that causes that. Um, I will say that a lot of the times adults, parents, clinicians are freaked out by kids being attracted to violent imagery when they don't need to be. You know, if you have a 35-year-old who is in love with horror movies and all they do is watch horror movies, we don't really think that much about that. But when you have a 15-year-old or a 10-year-old that's really interested in horror movies or horror imagery, we tend to be scared of that because we don't understand that for some kids they will have those interests and it isn't necessarily a sign of bad things to come. In fact, I would say the vast majority of kids who, you know, they're they could be considered goth or whatever, um, you know, just the phase. They're just into that. And there's there's usually nothing to worry about. It doesn't mean you just turn the other way and ignore everything. But it just means that that alone isn't a reason to be alarmed. Uh, you ask, how can clinicians work with such children? Well, again, you know, uh, if we look at the Slender Man situation, we had two girls who – uh, from my remember, from my memory of the case, it was a very rare case. You know, these kinds of stories get sensationalized, and they scare the bejesus out of parents and teachers and society. When these kinds of situations are extremely rare, where you have kids that are very, you know, into violent imagery and horror stuff, and it escalates to something bad happening. I mean, these are extremely rare. I mean, we're talking like, you know, two kids out of millions and millions of kids who are interested in that kind of imagery and never do anything bad like that. It's sort of like when you have a kid who likes to play first person shooters, you know, we don't really hear this anymore because there are enough adults who like first person shooters, but you know, 20 years ago, uh, you know, Halo and uh, Counter-Strike and these kinds of games were mainly played by teenagers and young adults. And there was a lot of paranoia. It's like, oh, you know, they're they're killing people. You know, in an average day, they kill thousands of people on their, you know, on their Xbox. And we expect them not to be violent. And it's like, well, let's look at the data. <laughs> uh, and what, you know, these stories would crop up where you'd have a kid who would go on a killing spree. And the Columbine murders, for example, I, I believe they played first person shooter games. And for some people, it was attributed to that. I'm not sure if it was Columbine, but other other killers like that definitely were. And it was like, we got to shut down the first person shooter situation. Now, I'm not saying that violent games should be given to all kids. I'm just saying that the, the paranoia and the hype is, is usually overblown. And, and I think it's true when it comes to this sort of thing. Yeah, you hear about the Slender Man case, and it, it, it's scary. But millions of kids played that game, Slender Man, and millions of kids were into Slender Man. And Millions of kids did nothing bad as a result of that, other than the fact that, you know, maybe they had a few nightmares or something. So we just have to remember that. And the two kids that were in the Slenderman murderers, um, one of them was very controlling, I remember. And they both had um, very – they had very active imaginations. And so this is actually one of the risks that I would see in some some people, adults as well, 
is some people are just really prone to very imagination sorts of thinking where their ability to differentiate between reality and and stories gets it's hindered by their uh, either their intelligence level or they just have a couple wires crossed in their brain it's hard for them to differentiate sometimes maybe they had parents that were kind of lived in a fantasy world maybe do their own traumas they retreat to a fantasy world often you know this is why you see people online who are just going ballistic about certain things happening in Star Wars movies or something you know there's this there's this thing you know and i guess i'm kind of one of those people but but you see the, this this uh, behavior in people where, where they're just they they seem to come unglued about things that are that don't have any connection with the real world, you know, or they you know start to adopt a certain anime uh, persona and the blending between the anime persona and themselves becomes difficult to determine. And, you know, it's complex and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's nefarious or bad, but it for some people, they could just never do that. They, they're just not attracted to that kind of thing. And for others, you know, they're, they're, they very much are. Um, I've had clients who were like this, who were, you know, the, the phrase we sometimes use for kids is magical thinking, where uh, as children, very young children, we have, you know, we're, we believe in magic. We, you know, we can't really differentiate between uh, reality things and magical things, things that don't exist, like like the Easter Bunny and and uh, you know Santa. Sorry if any children are listening right now. I can't imagine that happening. <laughs> I don't think we have any four year old patrons. But anyway, um, you know, there's this magical thinking that is retained into adulthood by some people, um, often because of abuse, arrested development, essentially. And so they have a hard time differentiating. And so when they're exposed to this sort of imagery, they're more susceptible to it. And I think that the Slenderman murders, the two girls, they were like that. So not only, I think, were they kind of isolated, you had kind of an abusive relationship where one person was was kind of, they kind of needed to be controlling. Uh, that was part of their defense mechanism. And another person needed to be dependent, if I remember right. One of the, and if I remember right, actually one of the Slenderman murder girls ended up being schizophrenic. I don't remember. Uh, and, and you'll see that. You'll see, you know, before someone has full-blown uh, psychotic break from reality, you will see magical thinking emerge sometimes in some people. Anyway, the other thing is uh, when you actually study human beings in, in like spectrum of schizophrenia or spectrum of delusion, uh, you find that some people don't rise to the threshold of schizophrenia, but you know, they're like 10% schizophrenic in that they they don't have full-blown hallucinations or full-blown delusions, but the way their brain works, it just, it, it seems not to be always in touch with reality. Um, so there's a lot of shades of gray there for, for some people that we might look at in terms of psychopathology or, you know, brain injury or something like that. That can, that, you know, that can emerge in, in some kids, but it's pretty rare. You also ask, if the child is not acting out any violence at this point, are there still steps to take to ensure safety? Well, the thing is, again, it's, it's not, if you don't see that, I would talk with a lot of parents and teachers about this. And the thing I would always say is uh, the biggest indication of risk of violence is past violence. If there's no past violence or no past threats, 
um, or they're very infrequent, then we, we're pretty sure that nothing's going to happen. We can't guarantee that. There are plenty of people who just come out of the blue and are violent and you know there was no precursor. But the vast majority of cases where there's a, a severe behavior like murder or stabbing people or something, there were several steps up to that point. Um, that were either responded to or not um, doesn't really matter. But, you know, people, you know, serial killers often will start on animals, for example. And before animals, they will talk about doing things to animals and people. So there's a there's a progression to this usually. Um, the other thing is, is people, you know, another thing I would tell teachers and, and parents was you're watching too many movies and you're you're confusing it with your kids because the vast majority of kids do not do things like this. And I can tell, I would tell them flat out, have you watched a movie recently about like a serial killer or about some kind of uh, psychopathic killer of some sort? And they'd be like, well, yeah, I just watched. And I'd be like, you're, you're letting that affect your brain too much. Like, um, you know, relax because you're freaking yourself out unnecessarily. You're treating the kid in a very weird way. You know, if, if you want to kind of, create a complex in a kid it's like you know have tremendous overreactivity when they draw a gun on their on their notebook at school it's like what if the kid just likes the look of a gun like they're that doesn't mean they're going to kill anyone you know now again i'm not saying ignore kids i'm not saying uh we just look the other way i'm saying that's not a slam dunk indication that something bad is going to happen now what we do want to look for in a kid uh, that might commit violence is, again, a pattern of violence, threats, uh, access to ways of harming other people, uh, mood disorders, suicidality, right? Because I've talked about this before when anyone is pushed into a corner and they conclude that they want to kill themselves, sometimes they have a lot of anger towards others and they want to bring people with them. And so we want to monitor suicidality, emotional regulation, connection, thwarted belongingness. All those kinds of things are definitely things we want to watch out for so that we can help with safety. But what a lot of parents and teachers do is, is they just want to punish it out of a kid. You know, they just want to be like, you are, you are forbidden from playing Slender Man. You are forbidden from drawing guns on your notebook. And I'm just like, what the fuck is that going to do? <laughs> I'm just being like, you know, I get the impulse, but how about consult with the experts here? You know, let's talk about the bigger picture here. Let's talk about the development. And, um, and you know, to bar the child from these things is going to do nothing other than make them more attracted to it. So, um then you ask here, uh, what if the child is watching these characters but won't talk about it in therapy? Yeah, I mean, this is a common thing. Children often don't want to talk about the things you want to talk about in therapy. You know, a, a child is sexually abused. The child goes through a divorce. A child's mother dies. A child, you know, uh, likes to draw guns or is very attracted to Slenderman. And you sit down and you'd be like, you know, your mom wants me to talk with you about Slenderman. Well, you know, most kids aren't going to want to talk about it in that situation and because the kids sense danger because it is dangerous because they know that if they talk about their attraction, attraction to Slenderman, you're going to either overtly or co covertly suggest that it's pathological that, of what they're doing or at the very least that it's a risk factor or it's bad or something. And so, you know, if you want kids to talk about things, you got to make it clear that you are on their side and that you just want to explore it with them. And 
to be, you know, to really demonstrate that is to not really care about uh, hammering on a particular topic. I talk with my supervisees about this all the time. Is like, you know, uh, I'll hear an audio and I'll just be like, you're hammering on that kid. You're doing it in a very nice, empathetic therapist way, but you're really hammering on that kid. You know, the kid knows you want the kid to go to school because the kid's skipping school or you want the kid to stop smoking marijuana or you want the kid to, um, I don't know, work harder at school or whatever and or talk about Slenderman. You know, if the kid gets this impression from an adult, by the way, because you're an adult, that, you know, you have an agenda, then they and they don't have to participate. You know, they're just not going to. So you got to switch your paradigm to one of uh, reality, which is that the Slender Man attraction means nothing um, and that you are there to be with them, to explore their world in a respectful, unconditional, positive regard manner. And when you prove yourself for as many months as you need to, then they'll talk with you about anything. That's my experience. Anyway, let's... But thank you for emailing me, patron Hapa Julia. Uh, let me know if that answers your question or if you have any more. All right, this next email is from my former student, patron Grant. He writes, I remember taking the Myers-Briggs uh, type indicator for the first time as a high school student way back in the 20th century. <laughs> That's funny. Way back in the 20th century. Yeah. I was a high school student way back in the 20th century too. God, that sounds so weird. Um, I've read that it no longer is considered a good measure of temperament. Is that true? And if so, what types of evaluations have sprung up, sprung up that are an improvement on those? End of email. Yeah. The Myers-Briggs was, to my knowledge, never really considered to be the golden standard or the, you know, st- one of the standard array of personality tests that are given when psychologists evaluate personality. Um, For whatever reason, Myers-Briggs just became very popular. I think it's because it's pretty easy to administer. Uh, I don't know. I don't think it's very easy to understand, honestly. Every time I've – because I've taken it multiple times, you know, even before I worked in the field. And I remember always being like – I understood the extroversion and introversion, but the other ones I was like, I don't really get these other dimensions, like the feeling, judgment, reason. I know that they have explanations, you know, blah, blah, but they just never really resonated with me. The introvert, extrovert definitely did. And that's what research shows is that the – out of the four dimensions of the Myers-Briggs, the only one that really stands up under, you know, scientific empirical scrutiny is the – extroversion introversion measure which you know we can thank young for uh, popularizing from what i understand uh but you say you know what types of evaluations have sprung up well um to my knowledge the personality tests that have been around have been around probably before myers-briggs was popular uh, the MMPI, uh, the MCMI, the PAI, you know, these are all uh, this, this sort of standard personality, uh, what we call objective testing that psychologists will use. Um, I actually did these tests with Umberto and Mandy years ago. I actually reran one of those episodes not too long ago in which I analyzed all that. Um, and you can listen to those. I think I call it personality assessment I'm not, or co-hosts testing the co-host personality. I think that's called anyway. Anyway, I did that. I did. I just posted the rerun, you know, a couple weeks ago, I think. Um, 
And so those are the standards, the, the MMPI and the PAI and the MCMI to a lesser extent, I think. Um, there are others, but those are the ones that I always hear and I'll see in psychological reports. Um, these types of tests take a lot longer to take. They can only be administered by trained psychologists and a smattering of other professionals that are you know, qualified to do it. They have to be um, scored by a very you know, sophisticated and complicated uh, scoring systems. And then they have to be interpreted by a competent clinician, and then they have to be reported to the client or whoever you know, needs that report in a competent way. With the Myers-Briggs, it's often just sort of administered and the people get the results and there's no one there to really kind of interpret it. Now, I know some psychologists, I will say some psychologists do use the Myers-Briggs. I have a colleague, Ann Blake. She's a psychologist and she actually did an episode with her called Myers-Briggs and you can listen to that. And she actually administered the test to Umberto and Mandy, I believe. So some psychologists use it. She's a Jungian psychologist, though, so I think that's what attracts her to the Myers-Briggs. Um, anyway, you also use a word. I just want to nitpick about it. You know, you, you know, I've read that it's no longer considered a good measure of temperament. Um, none of these are evaluating temperament. They are evaluating personality. Temperament is usually considered to be, you know, what we're born with, essentially. Uh, someone who has a temperament who is very active versus kind of, um, you know, sedate, a temperament of uh, mischievousness versus compliance, a temperament for sensitivity versus um, mellow, a temperament to be colicky versus very easy as a baby. You know, these are temperaments that we usually talk about, um, whereas personality is usually a combination of temperament and experience and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, let's read another email. All right. This next email is from patron Andy from Pennsylvania. I had listened to your most recent podcast regarding enmeshed families. It was a very interesting and eye-opening topic that had me reflecting on my own family, discovering that my family may actually have been conflictually enmeshed. It was definitely much worse growing up, but now that my two sisters and I are older and have become self-sufficient adults, the situation has gotten a lot easier and understanding between my parents and us. So just chiming in here. I had no idea how many people would resonate with the enmeshment episode. I have uh, you know, known about enmeshment for 25 years. I have been teaching the concept for that long and you know, just never bothered to talk about it because I, I always thought of it as kind of this niche family therapy idea. But when I you know, published that episode on enmeshment, I had a lot of emails, including famous patron Lyndon, uh, who were just like, wow, you know, it's an interesting concept. Never heard of it before. And I think the you know, as I'm talking about it right now, I think one of the things I can take away from that is that family systems ideas are powerful and not very well disseminated amongst the populace. I mean, there's a reason why I entered family therapy. There's a reason why I'm a marriage and family therapist. I could identify as a psychologist, but I don't like to. I, I, and I actually don't identify as a psychologist. Um, I identify as a marriage and family therapist. Why? Well, partially because of family systems theory and all the different, you know, uh, subcategories and ancillary topics in there. It's a very powerful idea, and I consider it to be one of the most useful ways of seeing the world and one of the most hardest ways. And an enmeshment has to do with that. So maybe I should talk more about those ideas as time goes on, like right now. Anyway, uh, getting back to here. 
Now I am wondering if it is possible to be enmeshed with my partner. I have been dating my boyfriend for almost six years now, and we had just moved across the country about a year ago. He's been having a hard time as he left behind many important friendships uh, and his support system. He goes to NA, Narcotics Anonymous. And, you know, we're starting all over again in another in another state. My partner has been acting out emotionally more than usual and has been exhibiting slightly controlling tendencies that I know are coming from a loving place, but may also actually be coming from insecurities of attachment. Could this be due to the move and leaving behind his friend groups? So just chiming in here. Yeah, absolutely. This is often a overlooked stressor. People often are just like, yeah, let's just move across the country and for another job. Or, you know, I've always wanted to live in, you know, Texas or Florida or New York or California. Let's just move. And, uh, you know, unless you have a pretty strong base to begin with or you're moving with other people that you have a strong base with, this is a massive stressor on people's lives. Even if you're not quite, you know, even if, you know, the people you're moving away from, you're not even that close to. It's, it's just a big deal to move. And so it needs to be taken into consideration, particularly if you have kids, um, you know, kids of a certain age, say around, you know, four, five, six, seven years old and older, when you move them, it's traumatic for them. Um, now, it's not like PTSD producing per se, but it's, um, you know, it's a big deal for them to move away from their neighborhood, their safety, their friends, their extended family. Um, now, if you're moving towards extended family, then there can be a net benefit. But anyway, so yeah, uh, you're talking about your partner having some insecurities, being controlling, uh, being acting out emotionally. Could this be due to leaving behind his friend groups? Absolutely. Um, you also say, you know, he's in recovery from addiction. How how do I know if it is enmeshment or the start of codependency? It's hard to know. You know, it could be one and the same. Enmeshment and codependency uh, can be related for sure. Um, you know, it doesn't really matter what name we put to it. You know, you're seeing things emotionally acting out, insecure, controlling tendencies. We could call that enmeshment. We could call that codependency or dry drunk issues. Uh, you know, it's hard to know. And uh, uh, it's hard for me to know what advice to give you given that um, I can't assess you. You also ask, what can I do to prevent either from happening? Again, it's possible for me to know, but if I was to talk generally speaking about all people, you know, if you're trying to prevent enmeshment, then number one, you want to lower the stressors because if you, the two of you have tendencies or you do have a tendency towards enmeshment, then the more stressed out you are, the more likely you are to return to that. Um, the other thing to, to think about is that you might actually be playing a big part in this in that you came from enmeshment as a child. And so there's a compulsion, repetition compulsion, Freud called it, for us to recreate our past relationships and our current relationships. And so you might be inadvertently creating that enmeshment, conflictual and you know enmeshment with your partner uh, in subconscious ways. It's actually quite common for, uh, you know, if we call the dependent person, the person struggling with addiction, and then we call the codependent person, the, you know, the partner of the um, person who struggles with addiction, the codependent person often will, 
you know, when there's problems in their relationship, they often will frame it as a problem with the, with the person struggling with addiction rather than looking inward because that person often has deep insecurities that prevent them from looking inward. You know, it's, it's, it's hard for them to accept that they have issues themselves. And so, you know, that's another thing you can do. If you want to avoid enmeshment, you know, practice boundaries. It's hard to describe, um, but uh, I, I work with couples on this in terms of um, avoiding enmeshment because what happens when you're enmeshed and listen to the whole episode on enmeshment for more details is that, you know, the boundaries get blurred, uh, the self is diminished. And what ends up happening, there's a lot of ways to talk about it. But one of the ways is that you're rigidly locked in on a particular way of behaving towards each other and thinking about each other. And like an example that I give sometimes is like you're having sex and, you know, you're rolling around in the dark under the covers and there's there's no there's not very much boundary between these two bodies emotionally physically spiritually you know you're intertwined and um you're in sync and you're you know you can feel every inch of their body and they can feel every inch of yours and um you're just sort of in this swirling mass of enmeshment well, in that situation, that's intimacy. That's great. That's that's enmeshment is good. But in another situation, say uh, you know your spouse comes home from work and they're a little uh, stressed out, they're a little snippy with you, they're a little short with you, and they start you know barking at you about things. Well, in that moment, you need to have flexibility to have a boundary there and go like, okay, they're in a bad mood. It's them. It's not me. Um, it's not really worth, you know, trying to address this right now. Maybe I'll address it later, but um, I'm going to pull back. And so you have the flexibility to pull back and say, like, you know, I'm going to go for a walk or I'm going to go to the store or or I'm going to take care of my spouse who's stressed out and I'm going to um, not really take it personally. Well, enmeshment means that the the boundaries are so blurred that you're locked in and you can't pull away. And you end up, you know, reacting very uh, knee jerk in some ways to the other person of just like, well, you know, how dare you talk to me that way? And even though you know better that, than to do that. And so uh, that takes practice and it's easier said than done. I've worked with families on breaking enmeshment cycles for years and found like 20 percent success. Enmeshment is tenacious, especially when there are deep psychological reasons for doing so. If you want to avoid codependency, um, you know, go to Al-Anon. That's the best thing you can do. And if, if you're not going to Al-Anon, um, you know, or you're not going to NA meetings with your partner, uh, you're at a deficit because there's a good chance that your partner, uh, I don't know, but there's a, there's a pretty good chance that your partner is on the slippery slope to using again. You know, they're stressed out, they're moving, uh, you know, they're uh, feeling insecure, they're they're engaging in controlling behaviors, um, you know. They're they're they feel distance from you, and you know those old feelings of like, well, you know, you could always get high. That'll, that'll take off the edge, and you're a lot funner when you're drunk or whatever it is. And so you got to be a part of that process, and that either means Al-Anon or NA or you know a couple therapy. Uh, you know, you you don't want to enable, um, you know. There's a lot of roads to relapse, and so you want to uh, you know do what you can from your side. It often involves uh, 
doing what you need to do to make yourself right, and then that'll help the other person. Obviously, there's a lot of emotionally focused stuff. Listen to my episodes on emotionally focused, emotional regulation, loving each other, and try not to judge. And I hear that in your voice. You know, you're not judging your partner, which is good. Uh, if you're if you start to get to judgment and criticism and contempt, then Gottman knows that that is bad for everybody. And then you also say here, he is currently going to therapy once a month for his depression, as well as actively trying to find new groups around our new area. I'm assuming you mean uh, Narcotics Anonymous. Um, once a month might not be enough. Uh, if I had a client with those problems and they were coming once a month, I'd be like, yeah, let's probably amp that up a little bit. I don't know if it's a, a, a money thing or what, but um, uh, but I'm glad he's going to therapy. That's great. You know, keep doing that. All right, one more email here from an anonymous patron. She writes, I was wondering if you might address your theories regarding psychosomatic symptoms. I have survived six years of abuse, physical, sexual, and emotional, which triggered a myriad of health issues that have no physiological reason. Emotional distress, a hyperactive nervous system, and living next door to one of the, one of the abusers has led to my health decline. I am currently working with an EMDR therapist. While I have made progress in recovery from trauma, my physical body continues to trend negatively. Years of trauma enable me to handle inordinate stress, but it's clearly taken its toll on my well-being. I would appreciate your thoughts on all of this. Yeah, well, first off, I'm really sorry you're going through that. Uh, that is awful. One, uh, six years of abuse, physical, sexual, and emotional. I mean... You don't have to say anything more than that. I know what that means. That is, you know, you've, you've been tortured for six years, and that's going to take its toll. And I'm really sorry you went through that. It's totally unfair. And I'm glad you're in therapy, you're getting help, but, you know, you're still suffering from that. The reverberations of that trauma are still reverberating. And um, that's just how the body works. And your body is, you know, it's healing. It's, it's doing its job, uh, but it's going to take time. Yeah, the, the terms that we use are not psychosomatic. We'll tend to use the just the term somatic, or we'll use the term psychogenic sometimes. Yeah, there's conversion disorder, somatic symptom disorder, or just, um, you know, you can just have symptoms of, you can have physiological symptoms from other disorders as well, PTSD. Um, now, I will say that it's possible you actually have a medical condition, and the fact that uh, there's no physiological explanation given to you by medical people. It doesn't mean that you don't have a medical condition. We are we haven't reached the end of our uh, you know medical knowledge road uh, by any means. Uh, so you know just know that. Um, but of course, you want to consult with your uh, clinicians uh, for more information of likelihood. I'm guessing that your medical people have said you know in all likelihood it's not um, an actual you know a functional problem with your body and that it is trauma related and yeah absolutely trauma can result in physical symptoms you're in therapy keep recovering if it is psychogenic then you know in all likelihood these physical symptoms will subside with time uh it's totally normal it's unfortunate you know it's, it's one of the tragedies of victimization is that uh the abuse c- continues to you know, plague us well after the events are over. Um, you know, think of it as like this shadow abuser that just follows us around, hitting us and scaring us and, you know, bruising our bodies and our psyches. And it and it's just um it's just such a horrible thing. And, you know, I kinda wish that our laws reflected that on some level. 
some people are brutally raped, for example, and the criminal is is given minimal, uh, you know, jail time or probation, for example, and then the victim for you know twenty five years is suffering from various, uh, you know, physiological and psychological ailments. And um, and then another person, you know, sells a pound of weed and spends 25 years in prison. It just doesn't make any sense to me. So um, I'm really sorry you went through that. You're in therapy. Keep going. It's totally normal. It's unfortunate. You know, do what you can. Um, if you're living next door to one of your abusers, it's possible that all of your efforts to heal are just kind of uh, running in place because if I live next door to one of my past abusers, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. And uh, so, you know, I don't know what kind of situation you're in, but advocate for yourself on that one, man, because um, you deserve to feel at safe when you're at home. And maybe you don't even know what that feels like to truly be safe. But uh, I'm guessing, you know, given the way you're talking, that you don't actually feel safe in your own, own home. And that is a crime. That's a tragedy. And that needs to change. Again, I don't know if you can change it, but if there's a chance, I would try. <laughs> anyway, well, uh, I managed to uh, go through a lot of emails today. It's always fun to um, to kind of plow through my list of emails here. I still have 93 more pages of emails, but uh, I got through some of them. <laughs> All right. Uh, please take care of yourself, patrons. Love you so much. And tell us, tell others about the podcast. You know, it's been a while since I've actually given some announcements, but, um, you know, review us on iTunes. <laughs> Podcasters always say that. Uh, I, I We would love it if you actually did that. About once a year, once every couple of years, Umberto and I will just read um, all of the reviews. Um, sometimes we'll do it online. So if you do that there, um, that would be appreciated. And, we'll, you know, we'll read you on the air maybe. Join us on Facebook and Instagram and also join the Facebook fan group. Um, also, you know, if you want to email me as a patron, go to the Contact Us page on our website. That's that's really the only way I want people to contact me because it asks all the appropriate questions. If you don't know, I go on YouTube, uh, Seattle time, Thursdays, 2, two o'clock uh, every week. So uh, for an hour, I just answer questions. So if you want to talk with me, um, then that's the time to go. Thursdays, 2 o'clock Seattle time. Join me. About, I don't know, a few hundred people join me every Thursday and answer, ask all sorts of interesting questions. It's, it's a good, fun time in my week. And please take care of yourself and take care of others because you deserve it.